Okay, so chapter 12. We're learning about the Benini. So, Benini means in the middle, right? And the Benini, we said they, they do not allow their animal soul to express itself in any of the garments of thought, speech, or action. So nothing that they do originates in the klipa, right? Which is, um, shall we say, a very extreme kind of state of being, yes? Moreover, the Altarba says, this person has never nor ever will commit any transgression. And we discussed how is it possible they've never committed a transgression. If you sinned once, you can never be a Bainani. Do you remember what the solution to that problem was? Right. Tshuva, right, the kind of tshuva which transforms your sense of yourself, right, so that now you can say, as Rama says, I'm not the person who did those things, right? And that, or as Rama says, that Hashem could testify that given the state you are in, you would never sin. Right. Okay. So, in as much as we're looking at this person's behavior, this person's behavior is perfect, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. However, I like the word however. It implies a complexity of thought. <laughs> what? No one ever says it like that. So one time, one time I was sitting with my two oldest sons, and they were much younger than they are now, so they were probably, say, six and. Seven? Yeah. Yeah, seven. yeah. Probably around that. And I asked them, who is worse? Haman, the wicked villain from the Purim story, or Pare, the wicked villain from the Pesach story? They used the word however there. So, one of them said, Haman was worse because he tried to kill all the Jews. Pare tried to kill the boys. The other one says, Par was worse because he actually killed Jews, whereas Haman was a complete failure. <laughs> so I said, this is, you're both making very good points. So there's the difference between looking at things as a matter of you know, theory and principle versus the practicalities. And they said, no, I'm right, the other one's wrong. In other words, while they had very interesting ideas, they had no complexity of thought. Each one could not recognize the other one was presenting a legitimate point of view. Hmm. So none of them could say... Haman was worse because he tried to annihilate all the Jews as opposed to Par, which only tried to enslave and kill the men. However, or another way of looking at it, they couldn't do that however thing because they were six and seven. But you and I, we are no longer... It's a dialectic. That's right. We are able to have a complexity of thought to appreciate the multifaceted nature of the truth. Something that's being critical for understanding the vein. Okay. The essence and being of the divine soul, which are its ten faculties, do not constantly uphold undisputed sovereignty and sway over the small city. Small city is a reference to the body. So, when it comes to the behavior, the godly soul is in absolute control, absolute authority. The animal soul has zero sway over this person's actions, this person's speech, this person's thought. But when it comes to the the essence, the being, the what's called the ten faculties, they do not hold constant, undisputed sovereignty. Okay. Except at appropriate times, such as during the recital of the Shema or the Amida, which is a time when the supernal intellect is in a sublime state. And likewise below, this is a propitious... How do you say this word? Propitious time for every man when he binds his Chabad intellectual faculties to God to meditate deeply on the greatness of the blessed Ein Sof. All right, we're gonna st- we're gonna stop there. There's, there's more. Okay, so now what I want to first focus on is this idea that this is not constant. Right? We're talking about now that on the one hand, when we look at the behavior, there's a level of perfection, and then we look on something more internal there's going to be fluctuation. Now, what's fluctuating? 
thoughts and emotions. No, no, the thought. So we're gonna we're, the thoughts. The thoughts and the thoughts. <clears throat> we're gonna come back to stop because it's kind of complicated. We have to become break thoughts in different levels. Um, I want to talk about this word sovereignty, and then we're gonna come back to what's fluctuating. Um, we're gonna talk politics now because that's where the notion of sovereignty first stems from, and then and then apply it psychologically. Okay. So, in a Western-style democracy, who is sovereign? The people. The people. No, 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 the people are actually sovereign, not the people. <laughs> however. Okay, good, however, please. I mean, if, it depends on how you see the electoral system. Mm-hmm. It depends on if you see the electoral system as functioning in a transparent way. <laughs> what does it mean that there, what does it mean to be sovereign to be fully in command of yourself i think of yourself no she's saying the people are sovereign what does it mean the people are sovereign they're in control of their own destinies Mm. So that's where I would like to differ. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that's what it means to happen. Let's use go back to another political system. Let's take the classic example of the you know monarchy, right? Absolute autocracy, czarist Russia, you know that kind of place, right? Who's sovereign? The czar. The czar. Does the czar govern the country? No. Not necessarily. Very often not. Why not? Because he delegates. That's right. In other words, governance and sovereignty are not the same thing. So now if I were to switch the question and say about does the governance reflect the will of the people, right? Now, uh, now you're hemming and okay. hawing is much more legitimate. Okay. In fact, arguably we can even raise a philosophical question, is there such a thing as the will of the people that governance could be based on? But that's not the topic of the class. The topic okay. of the class is sovereignty. Differentiate the Got people, it. Right? Okay. And so a very simple way that you can see that people are sovereign is let's say some person in a position of governance, whether a legislature, the president, um, a, a, a government bureaucrat, it doesn't matter what it is, right? And they come up with it and they say that even though the American people or the, well, let's avoid Great Britain because Great Britain's complicated. They still have some kind of monarchy left there. Let's say the earlier, or, 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 or the people of France or whatever, right? pick your, just, you know, mm-hmm. no monarchy involved, right? Even though the will of the people is not in accordance with our policy. Nonetheless, we are going to do X. Can you imagine getting up and saying that? As, as, as an actual, the will of the people is not with us. This is not what the people want, and we're going to do it anyway. No. Why not? Why not? Because the French are very good. Because the French protest too hard. They would say, you are not our anymore. Right. The, in, other words, in other words, there's a notice, there's a concept here called legitimacy, right? And, and I, what I want to focus here is not on the, the, the justness and the reality, just, just the notion of legitimacy. What makes the governance legitimate is that it pr- at least purports mm. to get its sanction, to get its authority from the people, mm-hmm. right? The people are sovereign. Mm-hmm. So if you're not paying credence, you're not showing that what you're doing, or at least making it appear that what you're doing is on behalf of the people, right? Based on the people, right? Then you're not legitimate. Now... In an autocracy with a monarch, do you have to do that? Can the, can the minister get up and say, um, you know, the, the, the minister finds say that even though this is going to cause havoc and, and, and the citizenry is going to make the citizenry's life miserable, but we're going to do it anyway. Like they, can, they don't feel any qualms about doing that. So to, use a, to use an example, I think, which makes this, takes this point, makes it very clear, though it's a different kind of example. We live in a very different world than 100 years ago um, on, a, on, a, on a kind of political, moral sense. And what I mean by that is, can you imagine, even less than 100, can you imagine any leader of any country getting up on the world stage and saying, we need X, Y, and Z, and therefore we are going to take from our neighbors by force what we need. And everyone's saying, okay, that's reasonable. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, if you need it and you're stronger, you should be able to do that. 
No, no one's going to know. Or can you imagine someone getting up and saying, we need to revive our sense of national spirit. So we're going to engage in a, in a, in a, in a campaign of conquest against some weaker enemies in order to prove right? Can you imagine anyone getting up and saying that? Mm-hmm. Now, if you go back 100 years ago, can you find people saying that? Mm-hmm. And like people being taken seriously. Go, bravo, bravo. Good, good idea. Right, right. So, so in other words, there's no legitimacy to those ideas. Now, does that mean people still don't do those things? Sure they do. They just have to legitimize them. We are defending the rights of our ethnic brethren. You have, to, you, have to, you have to put it a different spin on it, right? You could have corrupt governance, which is not really about the people at all, but at least has to purport to what? That it's for the people because the people are, are understood to be sovereign. Does that make sense? Okay. So sovereignty is defined in like a sentence? So I would say like this. That the, the sense of sovereignty is not, it's not really that you have control, but it what makes something be legitimate or illegitimate. If sovereignty is with the monarch, then what's legitimate is the will of the monarch. What's illegitimate is not the will of the monarch, and that's it. If sovereignty is with the people, right, then what the leadership wants is really irrelevant. The question is what's the will of the people. Right? Now again... In real life, there can be all sorts of corruption and, 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 and deceit about that. And that's not really the point I want to get into. Okay. So now, I want to... I want to one of my, uh, my... My son... Another little family story. So my son, he learns... Um, I have many sons, but one of my sons, he goes to learn every day in show on his own. Quite disciplined. Um, and the show he learns in is not a... Um, Hasidic shul. It's not a Hasidic synagogue. It's near our house. They have very nice regular scheduled minions. They have a good library. So he sits there and goes, and um, a bacher, a kid, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that, I don't know, went over and asked him, what is Chabad? It's like, I'm Litvish. It's a Litvish shul. You're Chabad. What's Chabad? Like half teasing, because you know like that's how kids do, but half like genuinely serious. So my son said, well, that's a good question. I'm going to think about how to answer it. I'll get back to you tomorrow. So he came home and he asked me, well, how, what should I answer him? And I said, well, what do you think the answer is? Right? I got to put words in your mouth. So we had a discussion about it. Right? And the discussion was going to be very, very, very Socratic. Me asking him questions, him answering, me grabbing on something he said and saying, to flesh that out. What does that mean? So like kind of then trying to synthesize something. Um, and one of the things that, we, that came out in this discussion was that in the, the, in Chabad is a, is a way of approaching serving Hashem in Torah mitzvahs. And one of the things that came out is the centrality of doing things for the sake of what's called in Hebrew the kavan al the divine purpose. You know, to make God happy, to fill God's intent. In other words, we are, the notion of taking the, the idea of serving God in quite a literal sense, like that God has something he is trying to achieve and I am here and one of my Judaism is there in order to fulfill that. Um, and as, we're talking about this, as opposed to say, what would be another understanding of Judaism be? Rooted on the idea that the reason why you should do Torah and mitzvahs and avoid sinning is because if you do Torah and mitzvahs, you'll get rewarded, and if you sin, you'll get punished. So this came out in the, the discussion. Um, we're talking. And he says, wait, and he stops and says, he says, there are people? No. He's 13. He says, there are people who do mitzvahs for reward? Like, the idea didn't seem legitimate to him. And he said, well, you ever notice the signs outside in different other shows? He's like, oh. Like, like, like if you donate to this thing, you'll get a lot of schos and, it'll like, and a lot of merit. And like, in other words, there is a culture in Chabad which is that doing things for the reward is illegitimate. So if you want to get up, right, and you want to get up and you're going to like, in, in the Chabad Shalom, you say, guys, we all need to like strengthen our Torah learning, right? You can't use the hook of, because that's going to get us a lot of reward. Now, I'm not advocating out whether that's a good or a bad thing. And there are other communities where, where that definitely is, right? there's this notion of what sovereign is, what do you have to anchor something in for it to be legitimate? Right, so I want to start with the political, and I'm moving to more of a cultural thing, right? So in Lubavitch, you get up and say, like, this is the divine plan, the divine will. This is what the Rebbe taught. Like, those all, like, th- those are discussion-ending claims. Like, if it's true, then that legitimizes what you're saying. So what does it mean that, what it, what does it mean that something is sovereign now in a person, psychologically? Everything has to answer 
what everything has to answer to, right? So now, in regular everyday life, why should you go to work? And why is it important that you support yourself? So you don't die. You why is it important that you don't die? Mm, I don't know. Yo, you do know. The answer is you are sovereign. Your life has a certain side of sovereignty. So the things that are there that are going to sustain and enhance your life, you, you feel that if I ultimately am going to benefit from it or avoid harm from it, then that legitimizes whatever the, th- the it is. So the sense of want to call it ego. I don't really like ego because it tends to be kind of harsh. But this, this, this sense of personal well-being, that's sovereign. So anything, and this is kind of how the animal soul operates, right? Anything that ultimately I'm convinced of is ultimately just in my self-interest, truly, that seems like a good enough reason to do it. Things which are not in my self-interest, I need to figure out why I should do them. And usually what's the rationale ultimately comes back to? It's actually your self-interest. So what is that, what's sovereign in the human psyche? What has the sovereignty? The self-interest. The animal soul. Can you back up a minute? I can. Okay. What was the first question in this series? What, what is that led to the animal soul is the answer? Because if I asked like, why you should go to work to say you have money, money's worth something, worth something so you don't die or whatever. Right. So then, and why is it important you don't die? Like you don't really question why it's important not to die because your well-being is sovereign. So anything that is framed in terms of this furthers your well-being, that's legitimate. Anything that can't doesn't have legitimacy, unless you can tie it back to that. Like that's kind of the normal way our psyches work. And that serves the animal soul. And that's the animal soul, right? So do you understand what I'm saying? So sovereignty is much more than this is what I want you. Sovereignty is much more than control. It's not governance. It's not, the godly soul doesn't govern. It's not in charge. It's deeper than that. What he says here, let's read the beginning. The essence of being of the divine soul, which are its sin factors, do not constantly uphold undisputed sovereignty. What would it mean that the godly soul has sovereignty? But what is the godly soul all about? God, right? So if the godly soul had sovereignty, then what would make sense to you? The things that connect you to God. What would you feel? What would, what, what would, what would, what would feel like, what kind of emotions would you have? Only ones that are oriented around God. Not because of an issue of control, but that's the only thing that would, that's the only thing that, I'll put it to you, I'll put it to you in a way where, where, it, where it should be kind of clear, right? If I come to you, not you person, come to a person, and I say, you should do mitzvahs. And they say, why? I say, because they'll connect you to God. Does that like end the conversation for most people? No. No, why not? Because that doesn't do it for them. Because connecting to God is not sovereign within themselves. If it was, that would be like, oh, it connects me to God. Well, that, 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 fine. Well, then, of course. Right? So there's this kind of like replacing the, it's in my self-interest with it connects me to God as the, 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 that sovereign element in the psyche. No, it's so, so, so. So you're saying it's not controlling, what is it? I'm not sure about that. So, so now, here's where we have a problem with being in a democracy, where democracy, because sovereignty is with the people, we don't really have a notion of someone else relating to your sovereignty. But let's, let's imagine that we lived in a, in, in a real monarchy, right? And let's imagine like we were totally all bought into the monarchy, okay? Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Does that, that doesn't just mean that the, the, the monarch's will is legitimate to the monarch. That means the monarch's will is what legitimizes everything to the rest of us. So now, if somebody comes along and says, hear ye, hear ye, the king decrees, blah, 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 blah. Why should you do it? Because the king said. Because the king said. Now, now let's, let's unpack that. What does that mean? The king said, so I'm going to, the king said, so I'm going to force myself to obey the king. After I'm worrying about what the consequences of disobeying the king are. No, that's what's important. That's what's important to me, right? There's this kind of, a, of, of, of an allegiance that one feels. That's the corollary to this, is that if you feel that the king is sovereign, you feel an allegiance to the king. And so whatever the king says carries weight because he's saying it. And so if you now put that in a person, if, if the godly soul has undisputed sovereignty, the only things that would make sense to me 
would be things that make sense from the godly soul's perspective. The only emotions that I would feel are emotions that would be legitimate from a godly soul's point of view. The only thing that would draw my attention would be things that are meaningful from a godly soul's perspective. If that's the case, are you trying to, is the godly soul controlling you? No. It's not really. Right, right. Now, does a Bainini experience states like that? Where, where does the Bainini experience a state where the only thing that makes sense to him is the godly perspective? The only emotions he feels are, the God, are emotions that, that are legitimate from a godly point of view. The only things that seem important are things that are important from a godly perspective. Does he, and so therefore, it's not an issue of control. It's not an issue of, 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 of one thing overcoming the other. That's actually the sign is that, you know, going back to the political example, Societies break down when there's a loss of a sense of legitimacy in the sovereignty of, right? Right? So if you have, for instance, a sense that, say, sovereignty is with the people, but you don't have a sense that a particular institution actually really is, is representing the people, then that institution loses legitimacy in the eyes of the people, right? And people stop cooperating, and then you get into all sorts of societal breakdown, right? Now, that institution might be powerful enough to maintain order, Right? But that's different. Okay? So now I can say the same thing. That, that, you know, I might know that you know, God is real and I should serve God and I can you know, control myself. and That's very nice. But that's not the same thing as saying my godly soul has soul sovereignty. If the godly soul has soul sovereignty, it effectively feels like there is no animal soul. So that is the state of the Bainini? No, it says the Bainini doesn't have the state constantly. Oh. But, he, that, but he does have it. At appropriate times. That's where the fluctuation is? That's where the fluctuation is. So sometimes the Bainini feels like the only thing that resonates with him is the godly soul. The only thing that carries any sway is the godly soul. The only thing that's meaningful, the only thing that's emotionally resonant, the only thing that's, that's sensible and intelligible to him is the godly soul's perspective. But that's not constant. That's at auspicious times, appropriate times. At that point... If the Bainini were to engage in reflection on their experience at that moment, would they be able to differentiate their experience from that of a tzaddik? No. Hmm. I, I'll, let, me, let, me, let me tone it down. Not obviously. Maybe there's a way, but it's not obvious what that would be. Right? Okay. When are... Okay, so now... The question is like, how does this actually come about, right? It's not just like, the, the, the important thing to understand, this is, not, this, is not going, this is not just one day, poof, all of a sudden the godly soul has soul sovereignty over the person, and then after three hours and 76, three, three, three hours and 26 minutes, exactly, poof, it disappears and you go back. Like, it's not, right? It, 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 it's, it's the result of engaging with something. It's the result of, of approaching things in a certain way. Later on, in chapter 13, we're going to see this, the author describes that this is something that the Bainia has to produce themselves. In other words, this state of the godly soul having soul sovereignty in the person is something the Bainini produces within themselves. But they can't maintain it, generally speaking, long all the time. So there are appropriate times when they're able to bring themselves into this state where the only thing that, that seems legitimate to them intellectually, emotionally, is the godly soul's perspective. But then, as we're going to learn later on in the next paragraph, they leave that state. But that state is not, is not a gift from above. It's not a random fluctuation. It's something that they can bring themselves into, but not, cannot, usually cannot stay there permanently. Right, so, right. So, 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 so it depends how we understand. If you're understanding fluctuation of a kind of sense of randomness and arbitrariness, no, but, it's, but if you look back and you step back, you see like, okay, sometimes they're in the state, sometimes they're not in that state. But that sometimes is actually due to action, mm. using the word action very loosely here that they take. Okay, what is this state called? This state is called, it says, perfect times, such as during the recital of the Shema and the Amidah. Okay? Uh, as he says, Kriya Shema and Tefillah in Hebrew. In, in the Hasidic terminology, as it's found in the culture, this is called davening. So it's very important to understand this if you ever want to like hang around Chabad or really understand Chabad. The word davening in Chabad has a double meaning. Davening is the Yiddish word for prayer. There is davening in the technical sense, such as you opened the sitter, you said the words at the appropriate time. 
You may have even thought about what you meant, and you may have even tried to talk to God. Then there's something else called davening, which is what it describes here. What davening is achieving a, is is doing what is needed to achieve a state that the godly soul has soul sovereignty in the person. Okay, so a common expression that Hasidim would 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 say is I wasn't successful in davening today. Right? Or did you daven? No, I just said the words. Okay. Um, or to, to, uh, another, another kind of expression would be is that sometimes you just daven for like two minutes. Now, davening for two minutes might involve like three hours, you understand. <laughs> okay. Because davening is about this kind of mental emotional state, not about the ritual of saying the words. Now, there's an interrelationship between the two, which is what we're going to talk about, but it's important to understand that, that this is adding a whole new layer. Now, this is actually sourced in, in the Talmud. The Talmud says, what is the source for the idea of prayer in, in the Torah? Which is that it says you should serve Hashem with your heart. Right? And it says it's what's called Avedi Shabalev, service in the heart. And this is understood quite literally that it is ultimately a mental and emotional task. And so setting aside the halachic obligation to say the words and to know what they mean and to um, align one's thoughts to the fact that God is listening to them, which are all absolutely required, that is, that is insufficient to really serve Hashem with one's heart because serving Hashem with one's heart is about attaining this state where the godly soul has soul sovereignty, regardless of how long that actually lasts. But it has to be genuine, it has to be legitimate. And the worst thing would be if a person were to delude themselves. Okay, let me explain to you what I mean. Let's say that you needed money. You don't have bills to pay, you need money, right? And you don't have the money. It doesn't feel very good to, to not have the money, right? It's stressful. What would you say about a person who says, this is really stressful? I'm going to do something to get rid of the stress but it won't actually solve the monetary problem. You said that there's something, there's something off about that, right? Now, now make it worse. What if they, what if they, what if they convince them, what if, it's not just they do something to distract themselves, like they go read a book, they watch a movie, they, I don't know, take some drugs, whatever it is, right? What if they actually convince themselves that because now they're not stressed about the lack of money, they're actually lacking the money. Lacking. Not lacking the money. Hmm. Now they've made it now. They, 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 so, the, so, first off, they didn't solve the virtual problem of money. And now the delusion of themselves makes it impossible to ever solve the problem because now they're convinced they don't have a problem. So, the person, we're taking for granted that being in this state is a good thing, right? Being in a state of the godly solving, having this soul sovereignty in the, in, the, in, in the inner life of the person is a good thing to be in, right? And that's a necessary thing for some reason. We're going to get to later. And now let's say that the person realizes they're not in that state and they don't like that. To then convince yourself that you're in that state when you're really not is extremely counterproductive. Okay. So now the question is what actually in truth brings a person to that state? And this is going to be, in this, when he describes this, the thing to understand is that this, this is, um, I would say it's a list, but it's not a list, it's one thing. It's exclusive. In other words, this and only this. This is the only thing that works. So if you're not doing this, then that's not what it is. And what does he describe it? Question? Yeah. Is yeah. Like he's describing something that works for every single person. He work, he's, so, so it's a good question. It does not work for every single person. Because not every single person is able to achieve the state. Later on, the Alter Rebbe will concede. We're going to see... A, we're going to see a variety of bainanis. This is what I like to call the classic bainani. In other words, now there's going to be a bainani which, which um, I think the simple way you're going to put it is like this. The classic bainani is a bainani that davens, that enters this kind of a, of a davening state um, with some kind of regularity. Then there's, a bain, then there's the possibility, which we're going to see in chapter 13, of a bainani who is able to enter a permanent state of davening. Just one second, I want to finish. Then the Altar is going to concede, or he'll make allusions to it in chapter 13, um, 
Um, but he, he will he eventually concede in chapter 17 that not everyone is capable of actually entering the state of davening at all and provide an alternative route to being a bainini that doesn't involve the davening state. So while being a bainini is something that is available to everybody, this type of bainini, the Alter Rebbe says, is attainable to most people, but not all the time. But not everybody all the time. There's different kinds of bainini. Yes, yes. We're not... Okay, so, so, what, so it would be like for me to say, um, it would make sense to give a class on how to be financially independent. Or not financially independent. Financially... Um, that's what I'm looking for. Financially stable. Because most people, most of the time, are capable of being financially stable, right? But is it true to say that every person is capable of being financially stable? No, there are extreme circumstances, right? And so you need to have other mechanisms in place if you want to make sure people don't like fall into extreme poverty, other than just teaching people how to be financially stable. In a similar way, the Alter Rebbe in chapters 17 and 18 is going to concede that this thing works for most people most of the time if they really apply to it, but it does not work for all the people all the time. Okay? Um, and, and therefore, there's going to have to be other, other, other approaches that I'll have to outline later on in time. And again, I'll make allusion to these before also. It's going to be fleshed out there. Yes? Davening, can it include your own personal prayer to God? Well, let's see what he says. And then, because it, it might be that there might be a, 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 a bit of a split between how we think of davening and think of prayer and what he describes here to enter the state. Um, what did you say about like a person feeling themselves that they're there, but they're not actually there? Yeah, that would be really bad because not only, not only you're not there, you've now created the situation where you'll never get there because you're convinced you're there already. What kind of person do you mean? What? What kind of person do you mean? Convince themselves that they're not actually there? Um, I mean, look, on, self-honesty helps for everything. <laughs> you know, if a person's willing to be really, really self-honest, um, one of the reasons why Hasidim make a big deal about having friends is because as much as you want to be so honest with yourself, it's always good to have someone say, um, you're fooling yourself. And, and, and it kind of the, the characteristic of a friend is someone who can tell you, tell you that you're fooling yourself and, you, and you're able to hear it and accept it and not feel all of a sudden defensive. And one of the traditional activities of a Fabrengen, um, at least as practiced amongst men, is men calling each other out for being not honest with themselves about where they're really holding, what they're really doing. Um, yeah. You think you're a 10, you're a negative 10. Yeah, so I guess the guy, the guy finishes davening, right? So, the, the, so this is a classic thing that happens, right? There's a Fabrengen in Shul, somebody's been davening for like four hours, and he like comes to the Fabrengen, he sits down, he makes kiddish, and someone says to him, so you, you finish chasing the angels? Like you think you're holy, right? So now, now, you can, you spend four hours of davening, you must be very holy. Right? Then you got the guy who like rushed to the sitter and sits down the Fabregni and someone says, what, you think you have no ability to connect anything spiritual? There's, there, there is a certain element of, now obviously, if there isn't a bond of camaraderie, it doesn't go over very well, right? Mm-hmm. That's very important. But yes, there is, there is that element. Now, the exact mechanism of how to create that honesty is, is, is a good question, right? But without that willingness on the part of the individual to be honest with himself and having friends and a mentor that, are, that can provide that perspective, it becomes very hard not to fall into fooling yourself. Um. Okay, so we're gonna like be jumping around in the wording a little bit because I, 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 wanna, I, I wanna make sure we understand things and I think sometimes certain ideas have to be understood first even though maybe in the text they show up a little bit later. So we're gonna... Um, at the, 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 right, the right-hand column, I'm going to start at the end of the first line. When he binds his Chabad, meaning his intellectual faculties, to God, to meditate deeply on the greatness of the blessed Ein Sof. We're going to stop there. So what is davening? To meditate. That's right. Now, he goes on to speak about arousing love, which I'll talk about later. Now, what does that mean? First off, you are not using your emotional faculties. This is very important. You are not using your emotional faculties. Not the emotional faculties don't come into play, 
But I wanted to, that's the first thing I want to discuss is what you're using versus what you're not using. During davening? Yes. Okay. And I'm going to use the example of a knife. Okay. Does anybody here know how to use a knife? Yes, hope so. You're sure? Maybe not sharp. Okay. Well, I'm going to say, I, I'm sure all of us understand that if we have a sharp thing, right, we can cut stuff. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking you to know how to use a knife. Properly, do the best of both of Okay, so let's... Okay, so let's, let's start with a very simple question, okay? Why are most, you know, your regular chef's knives, why are they shaped? with that kind of a curve to them. Like this. So you like what? So that you can continue the motion. Wait, I wasn't looking at you. What? Right? Well, so, so this is, I just want to, right? The, 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 right, the, the, curves of the curves of the knives have a lot to do with the kind of motion you're supposed to be using, right? So now, take that logically to the next step. If different knives are curved differently, then clearly there's probably different Mo- different motions that are supposed to be on that knife, right? Um, another thing, for instance, about, uh, about a knife, right? Are you supposed to use the weight of the knife? No. You sure? What about, a, what about a cleaver? The sharper, What about a cleaver? Yes. There are kinds of knives, that, right? There's a kind of knife where it's a lot of metal, right? And you're supposed to go like that, right? Now, do you cut vegetables with that knife? You could. What is that knife for? Meat. Yeah, meat and bone, right? You go to a butcher shop, you'll see, right? Okay. You have different kinds of knives for different types of things, and there's, a, there's the knowing how to use them. So, which part of the blade is supposed to do the cutting, right? Is the cutting supposed to be a slicing or a chopping, right? Right. So, I'll give you, a, like, a common thing is there's chef knives, the... Um, the, 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 the top part of the blade near the point, that is actually meant for control. It's not meant for cutting. I know they sharpen it, but it's meant for cutting. Is it meant for control? Is that you, the, the cutting part is, is, is more, draw a knife, but is more in the middle, right? So you, you have this kind of, you know, kind of, you know, you've sort of seen videos of chefs doing things, right? Mm-hmm. That, that part is being, is there, you know, some, some, you know, that part is there to help control the blade so it's not like flying over the place. Right? The, cutting, the cutting part of the knife is much shorter. Right? But then you take someone who doesn't know anything and they take the knife and they like, cut with the end of it. And, like, you see little kids where right? they take knives and they start like... Right? It, knowing how to use something, right, there's a kind of a skill to it. We have a lot of different faculties. Right? One of the things that we have is a flip between what are called the intellectual faculties and emotional faculties. And this is called Seichel and Midos in Hebrew. And davening, he says, is using which kind of your faculties? The Chabad, right? Not the emotional faculties. Now, does that mean the emotional faculties don't come into play? No. So let's explain. Have you ever played a game with someone who the reason why they're playing their game is to win? Uh Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy playing with them? No. Yes. What? Oh. Yeah. What context would you enjoy playing with them? Very good. We're competing, right? So in a in 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 a competition, right? In a, now the thing is, as the as, as that gets really the real reason why they're doing it is is to win, right? The competition has become much more of a formal competition. Why? Of a formal competition. Like, if I'm really, let's say, I'm going to play chess, and the reason why I'm playing chess is I want to win. Mm-hmm. If you're going to play me, right, and this game is going to, and that's really, it's going to have to become much more of a formal competition. Because all sorts of things are going to also become relevant. For instance, when you're playing because you enjoy playing the game or you enjoy the person you're playing with, obviously you try to win because that's how games play, but that's not really why you're playing. So, like, what happens if a person, there's like a little miscommunication about whether they moved a piece in a certain place? What do you do? 
If you're trying to win or if you're just having fun? If you're just you're playing. You enjoy, you enjoy the game. You enjoy the person you're playing with. You find out a compromise. Yeah, well, I'll take the move back. Whatever. It's fine. But if you're playing to win, this becomes a life and death issue. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't set up procedures of how to deal with it, right, it creates genuine conflict. Right? And, 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 and what ends up happening, right, is that a lot of games, which the game itself is competitive, can be very enjoyable without making it into a competition, even again, you have to play the game competitive, because the people are playing not because they want to win, they're playing the game because they enjoy the game and they enjoy the company of the person they're playing with. Mm. Right? And even a lot of amateur competitions are really about that. They're about being able to play the game on a high level, not about the winning. Okay? So you have this kind of... So now... What does it mean you're using your intellectual faculties? Well, so we have, broadly speaking, there's intellectual faculties and emotional faculties. Intellectual faculties are fundamentally different than emotional faculties, all of them. All the intellect, even though there's many things, there's Chachman, Bin, the Das, are all different. I don't want to get into all the differences right now. But what makes them all different than the emotional faculties is that intellectual faculties are about connecting to something for what it truly is rather than the focus on being how I feel about something. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna speak about this now in the reverse. What would it be that I'm, 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 I'm trying to use my emotional faculties? Okay. There's a old Hasidic teaching that crying for your sins is a very bad thing. Why is crying for your sins a very bad thing? Now, it doesn't always mean it's a bad thing. Well, sorry, it's self-indulgent. It's about yourself. That's right. When you cry for your sins, you feel that you, you feel like... There's, a, there's actually a verse that says that tears are like bread. That there's a kind of... You're satiated, like, I did this wrong thing. And now I felt bad. I felt so bad that I cried. I must like, it must really bother me. And like, and like so it's very self-fulfilling and very self-indulging. And like, really, one should have an intellectual approach to the sin. Now, I want to be careful because when I say intellectual, people start thinking academics. And, and, and by intellectual, I mean, what should you be focusing? If your person sinned, what should you be focusing on? How contrite do you feel? And that it brought you to tears, rather. What actually happened? What, did... what actually happened? Yeah. But in the case of sin, how does it from God, right? Or how you hurt God or hurt the other person, right? There's a reality. Are you connecting to the reality for what it actually is or not? That part of the psyche, which is trying to connect for reality to for what it is, that is what we refer to as the intellect in Chassidus. The part that is, this is how I feel it. This is how I experience it. This is how I relate to it. That's, the emo- that's what Uchsiris calls the emotion. So now let's say like this, yeah? Imagine being on the receiving end of this, okay? So you have a person, and they really want to feel connected to you. So they try to make the experience of hanging out with you very impactful and very, so they, let's go do some dramatic stuff together or um, let's, let, let's, let's do something very fun and exciting together, right? They, they, they're trying to bring in all the stuff to make the experience of being together much more emotionally engaging. As a result of the end of that, do you feel like this person has really gotten to know you? Do you feel like you and this person now have kind of like a deep bond? No. Doesn't mean you didn't enjoy hanging out. Doesn't mean that, but you might have enjoyed hanging out, right? On the other hand, what if, what if a person, without any of the frills, without anything, all, all this stuff, right? Dedicates some time to actually getting to know you. Like they ask you questions. And not in an inquisit, in, 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 like an interrogator kind of way where they're like, they're, they're filing the information away for judgment. But out of, out of, out of, out of a, with, 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 a, with a genuine interest in you as a person, they ask a follow-up question, right? And 
what kind of, as a result of that kind of conversation, do you feel like they've gotten to know you somewhat? Mm-hmm. In fact, in a certain way, you also feel like you've gotten to know them. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. What do, uh, in, 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 in the traditional orthodox way, how do we approach dating for marriage? Why? To get to know the person, right? <clears throat> now, does that mean you're supposed to approach it very clinically and analytically with a detached, impartial, academic... No, that's not what it means. It means you're supposed to fully engage the reality of the person for who they are. Now, you can't like go 100% from 0 to 100 all at once. That, right? But that's, you're trying to get to know them. You're trying to, to absorb a sense of who they really are. And if at the end of the day you like them, great. And if at the end of the day you don't like them, also great. Right? Either way, it's a win-win. Why? Because if you like them, so now you know that maybe you should marry them. And if you realize you don't like them, now you know that you shouldn't marry them. Right? But what if you try to make it that you like them? Yeah, what if you spend the whole day trying to have a good time together? Then, 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 then there's no connection really being formed. There's no bond being formed. You have no sense of who they really are. Okay, so now let's take that out of that context. Let's put it with God, okay? Does Judaism feel good when it's just dry and habitual and obligations? No, it doesn't, right? I think we're going, if, you, if all Judaism is you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that, right? Then you add like the social element that like people have expectations of you and if you mess up on what people expect of you as, a, as part of a religious community, then you have that whole thing, right? It's not a pleasant thing. You want it to be a little more uh, lively, a little more engaging, a little more spiritual, right? And certainly when you're doing something as dry as reading the same sitter every day, you really want to like spice it up, enhance it. So you try to do things to make it more emotionally engaging. Right? What are some of the things we try to do to make it more emotionally engaging? Sing. Singing. Singing, right? Singing. What else? Making food for... Making food, right? Right? Make a kiddish afterwards, right? <laughs> All sorts of things. Um... Does that actually solve the problem that you don't really know God in an intimate way? No. And in order to solve that problem, you have to set aside, like, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not trying to have a particular kind of emotional experience. What you want to do is that at the end of this, I have a clearer sense of God, for who he actually is. Maybe not in the totality of who he is, but at least in some sense. On some level. So that would be like in the sitter, like in the beginning of the blessings, connecting, like the rooster waking you up to your own personal, like getting woken up consciously. Right, right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into like different layers and how to do this. But, but just, I want to just talk about, so the part of yourself they're using is the part of yourself that's trying to come to terms with the reality of things, with the truth of things, and then allowing that to affect you rather than trying to um, bring about a particular kind of an emotional experience that you might want. Now, and now ultimately, it, you know, if you if, if if you've gotten to know Hashem, should you feel something towards Him? Okay. okay. So. How do, you, how do you get that person? Like, are we going there? We're gonna we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about it. But what I, what I just want everyone to understand, therefore, is. That, the, that, that when we says this, this idea of binding his Chabad is actually it's to God, this is not like academic study of theology. This is, doesn't have to do with necessarily how in, intelligent you are, per se. It has to do with your ability to be in, engaged with, like, there really is this being of God. He really is great and awesome and whatever you're doing. And trying to come to terms of that and make sense of that and absorb that. And that's my, right? And then that's very real and that's very relevant. And that that will affect me however it will affect me. And when a person sinks into that deeply enough, they enter a state where the only thing that moves them, the only thing that speaks to them, the only thing that resonates with them is the godly perspective. And that's what it means that their godly soul is sovereign. 
Again, going back to the example, if you're in a conversation with someone, say dating, whatever it is, doesn't, and you really entered a state where all you genuinely care about is getting to know this person really truly for who they are, everything else about you kind of falls away because that's the only thing that you're engaged with. And now all of your, what makes sense, what's emotional is all wrapped around that point. So it's not, I want it, to, it's not a state of like spiritual, like exalted, like wow, like it's, it's the, 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 the Chabad would describe it like when you really, really want, need something to make sense to you, right? And you become totally absorbed in it that like you lose, like your whole life becomes that and you just get lost in it. But it's not in an idea. It's not another person, it's the greatness of Hashem. And then the, I, that, when, when a person is actually mentally there, the animal soul, as I was gonna say, basically effectively goes to sleep. What basically is it has no inroad into the person's psyche at that point. It's like, have you ever seen someone that's totally engrossed in something, you realize like, you're like, there's no point in bothering them mm-hmm. now? Like, wait, you'll better be better off later. So the animal soul will interfere to try and prevent a person from getting into this state. But once they're in this state, the animal soul basically shuts down and waits. What would make them ever leave that seat? Well, realistically, we have to go to work. <laughs> Because if you, because when you, most people can't be in this state and engaged in the in, in the requirements of life. You have to go to work. You have to go grocery shopping. You have to go to. You have to like deal with your neighbors. So you have to do stuff, right? It's the rare individual who can be engaged in this state while still interacting in everyday life. Most people, even if they can achieve this state. There's the practical demands of life, which actually are rooted in, Hashem, in what Hashem wants from us. So you, you, and in addition to that, we also are mentally limited. This is exhausting. At a certain point, the, the, the engine burns out. It, 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 um, anyone who's engaged in work that is psychological, whether it's, whether it's you know, um, you know, involving deep, abstract thinking or caring for other people, right? It's usually familiar with this idea that like, if you keep doing that work over and over and over and over again, what ends up happening? You get burnt, right? You, you, you like, drain. In a way that like, doing physical work doesn't, doesn't have the same thing. Um, it's actually reflected in halacha that there's certain obligations that man has towards his wife that depend on his physical health and, and his availability. And they're less for Torah scholars because the presumption is that they are physically exhausted and drained due to studying Torah, which tells you what kind of Torah study they have to be doing, right? There has to be like deep kind of, but you're like, you're, and um, this is the thing, I remember my, 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 my mentor told me, he says, the important part about not fooling yourself, he says, you were davening and you were really there, right? And then the battery dies, because that happens, you burned out. But like, there's more pages left of the sitter. <laughs> so you like wanna like pretend it's like you can't pretend like that you're done, you're done. Like say the words, think about what they mean and like finish. Like, like, like why, you can't pretend like if, if, if it, just like, just like when a person has no ability left to engage in something, they really can't do it. So the same thing is true here that, that we're, so we're limited in both two senses, most people. One, there's the practical demands that we actually have to be involved in other things and we, we, can't, we can't stay in that state space even if we had the ability number two is is actually taxing it drains the person um and so they don't stay in the state forever again there is the rare baini which we'll we'll encounter in chapter 13 which is a baini who is able to kind of maintain this kind of state throughout their life and we have to talk about why are they a baini why are they a tzaddik we'll deal with that in chapter 13 why is it is it exhausting in a sense because when i hear that word it's kind of negative no, it's not exhausting. It's just like you can't keep doing it. Like, like, like it's, in, it's intense. It's intense. It's intense. And at a certain point, it's just like, like, 
there's a certain point, even if there were more hours of the day, you could not keep seeing more people and dealing with more people because you don't have what's left. You need to like... Right. There are other things right. Do, basically. right, and they and they actually rejuvenate and replenish. Interesting. Right, um, like for instance, one of the going back to the idea of the Ferengi, one of the again reasons why it's important to have friends is because the interaction with other people actually has a re, has a re, rejuvenating quality that re-energizes the person. There's kind of like a a a a, 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 a positive cycle of reinforcement. That entering in this state means that you're a different kind of person. That when you come and sit down with your friends, you're, you've had different experiences. But then those experiences with the friends um, enable you to go back and, and, and have the kind of the davening experience. The davening experience is something that, that it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's, it's an art and it's a craft to figure out how to get yourself into that state. Because with another person, it's hard enough. But another person, you like have sensory experience of them, right? And it's not the idea that I'm going to learn more information about God. It's like, oh, I didn't know. I thought this, now I didn't find out more information. It's not about finding out more information. It's about relating to that information in a more genuine way. Right? Just something simple, right? We'll take something very, very simple, right? Um, God wakes us up every morning. Like, and not only wake up, but generally speaking, we are more rejuvenated than when we went to sleep. Right? And that's, that's, that is both an act of kindness on his part, but it's a, it's a purposeful kindness. It's because God sees purpose in our being, right? He sees our being. As, he's, not just, he's not just throwing us something because it's easy and cheap for him and we benefit. He's because he actually sees value in our coming back, right? Okay. And can you see that theme reflected in different parts of the sitter? Sure. Now, what if when you reach those parts of the sitter, you were to really stop and ponder that and reflect on that? and allow yourself to really let that sink in, that this is real and this is true, and what does that mean? If you got into that headspace, you would be in a very different place, right? Now obviously, you can't do that if you're, if you're distracted, and you can't do that if you're anxious, you can't do that if you're worrying about a clock, you can't do that, you have to, it has to almost be a, a, an end in itself. You wanna take this you want, you, want, you want to know this thing that you believe and you understand, but you want to know it in a real way. And so you process it internally. And it sinks in to whatever degree it sinks in. And when a person gets into that kind of a, of, 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 of a, of a, of a groove, of a place, at that point, effectively to them, it feels like they have no animal soul. Effectively to them, it feels like the only thing that's important to them is connection to Hashem. And they'll feel whatever kind of emotions they'll feel to Hashem, whether it's a love of Hashem, or respect for Hashem, or an awe of Hashem, or, or a fear of separation from Hashem, or, or a sense of responsibility towards Hashem, whatever it is, however it affects them emotionally. And of course, then terminals become extremely meaningful to them because they appreciate the role the terminals play in their connection to Hashem, etc., etc., etc. And this is, not a, this is not a very inspired state. And the person doesn't feel like... like what the person feels like this is that this is very real, this is very meaningful, this is very true, this is very significant. And possibly, although not necessarily, this can be discussed later on in time, you'll get to, it might elicit very intense emotional reaction, such as crying or singing. And it could also elicit very, very subdued emotional reaction, right? Just a sense of personal conviction and determination, right? That's going to vary from person to person, it's very individual. And that's what he means when he speaks about this davening, the binding of the intellect to God. And it doesn't work if a person is trying to do that with kind of a, as like a, a way to have like an, an inspired you know, prayer service or something. It doesn't work if you add an ulterior motive into it. Okay. It's a relief. What? It's a relief. This concept. Why? Um, because... Otherwise, I'm like uh, evaluating myself. Oh, am I not feeling something? Am right. I not engaged? Right, right. So, the, so the, the Alter Rebbe says, the, I mean, the Alter says in one of his discourses, he says, that fact that, you're, that you feel like, you, you're like, am I feeling it enough? Am I into it enough? Is an indication you're not doing this. Because when you're doing it, you're doing it. When you're, the, when you're like, think, if you think about like, a, like, like something which is totally self-centered, right? 
like you have an important financial decision that it's not clear what's the right thing to do, right? And you consulted with the experts and whatever else and it's still not clear to you should you do A or should you do B, right? Do you like, your head goes into it and you're going it back and forth and you're pondering and you're playing it out and like you'll be oblivious to other stuff. Like, and you're like, hmm, am I sufficiently engaged with it? Like, you're not, you're, you're there, right? And that's, that, that's the state of davening. And the, 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 the siddur and the, 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 the amidah and the, and, and the shema and all these things, these end up being kind of, of a, a menu of suggested things to reflect upon, to grapple with. In other words, in a certain sense, the siddur is not supposed to be expressive of what you feel. It's supposed to challenge you to come to terms with something, right? So, for instance, we say, um, um, Hashem is, is, is gracious and compassionate, right? So many of us think, well, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to feel that Hashem is gracious and compassionate. And then I say the words to express myself. But it's more the opposite, like... Well, I don't feel that Hashem is gracious and compassionate, but the truth is that He is, which means I haven't really come to terms with it. So now I need to spend some time pondering it, reflecting it in a way that is really going to sink in the reality of it, which is really what intellect is. It's about getting, getting into the truth of something, the reality of something, that He really is kind and compassionate. And then once I do that, it will obviously affect me in whatever way it affects me. And it's that state of mind, that's, the, that, that's what you're trying to use, that's what you're trying to do. But of course, if you do that, there's going to be emotional consequences, more intense, less intense, different kind of emotional consequences. So it's not about being unemotional per se, it's about allowing the emotions to be a reaction to what you've come to appreciate, what you've come to know, what you've come to absorb. And it's that state of trying to sink in and absorb this truth, and there's many different aspects of way of conflict and greatness of Hashem. And that's toughening. So, does it make sense now that if a person's in that state, their animal soul is effectively going to shut off? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And there's nothing mystical about this. This is this is, it's not like a, I want to. This is not like a spiritual somewhere else. In fact, that's kind of the point. Is that when you're there, that's what feels normal. One way I've heard it put once is that the state of davening is where God becomes normal, and all the other stuff becomes weird. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. That it's sovereign. So, so now, now to answer your question, so when you said about asking, adding your own personal people, prayers, yeah. do, you, uh, do you see how that's kind of like the question is neither here nor there? Like if, if you take any of the things about the greatness of God and you really ponder them and, and, it, and it affects you in that deep way, it will affect you however it affects you. Well, you see, but Davide is also saying So there, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story, and we'll end on this point, and we'll continue tomorrow. There was a famous chassid named Rapilo Parachur. Rapilo Parachur was set up as um, a shpi, as a chassidic mentor, um, and it used to be in the earlier generations of Chabad that the, the Rebbe's would set up mentors. It was like a pyramid system. You didn't just go to the Rebbe. There was like a local mashpia, a local mentor, and there was sometimes one that was like over a whole region, and you, they would guide your growth, and then when they felt it was appropriate, you would go to the Rebbe. It wasn't like... And you didn't always get to pick and choose. It was much more of a structured system. Sometimes it was more in place and it was less in place. Um, parenthetically, the Rebbe tried to set up the system in the 70s. It didn't seem to work so well. People didn't want to, like, <laughs> so there's community should appoint mashpiyam, mentors for the community, and limited success in that endeavor. But anyway, so Chasa uh, comes to the famous, one of the most famous people in all this was named Hapilo Parcher. Parcher means he's from the town of Parch. And, um, Chassid comes to him and says, what am I supposed to do? I learned Chassidus. I study Chassidus. And then, after I study Chassidus, I contemplate what I've learned. And then I open up the Siddur Startaving. At that point, I just feel like it's all... I'm just saying the words. I'm, I'm saying the words, thinking about what they mean, but it's all dry. Like, when I was contemplating about what I learned, I felt very connected, very engaged. I was there. And then I start actually using the... start saying the words of the davening and... It, I feel like I'm going through the motions, saying the words and think what they mean, but I'm not there anymore. So he's, uh, Rabbi Hilaparach says, you should go to the Rebbe. And he says, what do you mean you should go to the Rebbe? And going to the Rebbe was like a whole journey, right? The Rebbe made you the mashpia, the mentor. <laughs> Give me an answer. So Rabbi Hilaparach said, it's not so bad to daven before davening. <laughs> and so in Chabad, there's always this idea that, that, that 
for many people, the ability to daven with a sitter is sometimes more difficult or more of a, 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 a level of, of, of expertise in, in, this, in this kind of process than to daven without the sitter. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of different kinds of relationships that different chassidim had over the years with the sitter. Now, in some sort of ideal sense, that yes, the sitter is like a perfect guide to how to develop a deeper, deeper sense of the truth of Hashem and, and the relevance in our lives, etc., etc., and it builds on itself. But we're not all ideal, right? So you would have chassidim that, you know, they... There was one part of davening, and that was the part of davening. They stopped at that part, and... These two lines, they davened for 20 minutes. Now, what does it mean? They These two lines, they stopped, and that they pondered, and that they reflected on. And that was it, right? And then it becomes very individual, um, and this is why also it's good to have guidance and mentorship, because something that's that individual, that's not that algorithmic, it's very easy for a person to fool themselves in. It's very easy to fall into what's comfortable, or what they find inspiring, or what they find stimulating, rather than actually developing this particular... Um, and, there's, and, and very often people write to the Rebbe like, what do I do? And the Rebbe say, you need to speak to someone in person who's more experienced and get one-on-one guidance and maybe they'll have to, you know, correct it if they told you to do something and it turns out not to work. It's, it's much more, as the Altar says in the beginning of time, it was called the long, short route. Well, in that sense, these classes are like They have an element of it. Because we're engaged, we're listening. Right, right. But ultimately, what the davening is to make, do make that an entirely internal process. Because when it's an entirely internal process, then it, it, there's, there's something very genuine when it's something that you're doing in yourself, within yourself, where there's no outside stimulation. Right? This is why you have these, these classic images of like the Chabad Chassid who's sitting there with a talus for like six hours. It's not that he's drawing out every word. He's like not saying... Like, it's like he says a few words, and then he's really like... It's not rushing anywhere. And then when he's done, he's done, right? Or you have like, sometimes this, the chassid, maybe he's davens before he puts on his talus. He sits there with the talus, because you know, the men put on the talus, right? And he sits there, he doesn't want to put on the talus until like, he really means it. There's a God who told me to do this mitzvah, right? There was a bracha, right? You can daven, so he, you know, blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies the commands of commanded us to wrap ourselves in a talus, right? And he like, he contemplates that and he wants to get the truth of this. Hashem is you, you're right there, and he's infinite, and he's, he's my personal God, and he's the king of the universe, and he's elevated me, he sanctified me, and with this mitzvah, with this talent, like, like really have a real inner dialogue with himself about that. And so two hours later, he's ready to put on his talents, right? That could happen, right? It becomes something that is, that is, but it's not about time, it's not about manifestation, it's not about what it looks like, it's about how genuinely honest it is. You can have a very profound, intimate conversation with a person in two minutes when you're really, you're really trying to hear what they're saying and they say it clearly and you get it. And you can have a six-hour conversation where it's all, as they say in Yiddish Bab, it's all nothing, right? It's all just... It's the same thing. So, so that's, that's what he means by daving, that engaging with the intellect, not in an academic way, not in a philosophical way, this is real. This is true. This is how it actually is. This is who he is. This is what my life is. And again, the Siddur is something that was designed by divine inspiration that, that actually is the ideal ladder of how to grow in that awareness. But we're not all ideal. And so some of us, some parts of the Siddur are more relevant. Some of us, other Siddur are more relevant. Sometimes before the Siddur. And all right, we'll continue tomorrow.